One of my favourite English rock bands of the 80s, Tears for Fears, got it spot on with the lyric, when people run in circles, it's a very, very mad world. Life is just so hectic and there's no respite. Daily work and family pressures, in my view, are significantly worse than they were back in the 80s when I was finding my way. Today's guest, Audrey Tang, is a chartered psychologist, NLP practitioner, and resident psychologist on Sky TV's Chrissy B Show. She's also author of best-selling books, Be a Great Manager Now, and her latest, The Leader's Guide to Mindfulness, How to Use Soft Skills to Get Hard Results. Leaders are under intense pressure every day, and by using Audrey's mindfulness strategies, you can focus your attention on the present so you and your organization can perform more successfully and make your world a little less mad. I'm thrilled to welcome on board IQ Boxing as the very first sponsor of Your London Legacy podcast. Run by the inspirational head coach, Xavier Miller, IQ Boxing Club in Neasden, Northwest London, is one big close-knit family where the boxers and coaches have excellent working relationships and every boxer supports each other on their individual journey. Every young boxer is given individual time so that they can flourish as a boxer, but more importantly, as a person of character. Regular classes are held for juniors and amateurs, and there are also keep fit boxer size classes. IQ Boxing is built on the pillars of respect, hard work and dedication, and with its supportive trustees, grows from strength to strength. You can find out more about the London legacy IQ Boxing are creating by following them on Instagram at IQXavierMiller or www.iqboxing.co.uk. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. So I'm delighted to have today on the podcast a very special guest, Dr. Audrey Tang. So welcome. Thanks for having me, Steve. Well, I don't call you Doctor or Audrey. No, Audrey's absolutely <laughs> Audrey. fine. Do you have a nickname? Many, but not ones that I'm willing to share. <laughs> oh, well, that's fair enough. They might come, might come out during the course of our conversation. They might. Now, I've got to introduce Audrey, and you are, you've got so many different things that you do with your life. Yes. It's very difficult. I was going to write everything down, but I thought it's better just to, just to read it off some blurb. And you've given me, you very kindly gave me your business card, and I've got your most recent book, which we'll, we'll come on to in a minute. But Dr. Audrey Tang is an author, a speaker, a trainer, a resident TV psychologist on the only television channel which is on Sky for mental health and well-being called The Chrissy B Show, if I'm not, did I get that right? That's absolutely yeah. right. You are a lecturer. Yes, I am. You're a trainer, you're a consultant, you're a public speaker. Have I, have I missed anything <laughs> Certified, That's pretty much most of it. Yes, certified yeah. CPD. Is it C? Yes, yes. My training sessions, yeah. I can give a certification, CPD yeah. certification. CP so if someone's continuing professional development, Con yeah, they are approved by CPD standards. So I think we need to sort of just flesh that out a bit before we come on to how, how you found your way onto your London Legacy podcast, which itself was a little bit sort of synchronistic. Now I was at Chrissy B's green room studio or in the green room behind the studio which is in seven sisters road just around the corner with my wife i don't know when this was it was a few months a few, few months few, ago a few months ago and she was a guest on the chrissy b show because she does some work uh, in her business for parents of children with special needs and as she went on i was sitting in the green room with with you and we got chatting briefly and it turned out that you were the resident psychologist That's on the right. show the chrissy b so i thought Hello, there's a there's a there's a victim. Something different <laughs> for, for your London legacy, and indeed, you you have got a fascinating story. Thank both, you, both in terms of your personal history, your background, and what you're currently doing. And I thought it would be perfect to have you on the podcast. So oh, I'm delighted to have you here. Pleasure to be here. 
I know you've done plenty of other interviews, but we were saying before you've not done one face-to-face like this. So No, I'm often trying to work out which button to click to make sure that I hit the studio at the right time. Well, you've got nothing to click today, and I'm pleased to say I've actually hit the record button because in a previous interview we were going away, and after three minutes I hadn't clicked the button, pressed oh, the button, no. which was a little bit awkward. Oh. Um, but the lady, uh, lovely lady Heidi gave me. So here we are. Uh, I'm not entirely sure where we are, what building we're in, but we're on Font Hill Road. We are, yes. It's a place called The Space, I believe, yeah. and it's a charity. They have training rooms available for um, people to hire, and it's one of – I like Font Hill Road because um, this road is one of the areas where I sometimes frequent if I'm after the odd prom dress or uh, evening gown. Uh-huh. One of my wedding dresses came from oh, here. okay. <laughs> my starter wedding. Right. <laughs> Your trial. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, not the second one, but the the first did, and 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 I don't regret that. But it and it was a lovely dress, to be fair. <laughs> well, for those who don't know, Font Hill Road is just off the Seven Sisters Road, very close to Finsbury Park Station, and it is the I don't know what you call it. It's an emporium of dozens of dozens of ladies' whole wholesale retail fashion shops. I'm it guessing is it's fabulous. And I was chatting to Steve before we started recording, and. Font Hill Road and Brick Lane Market were two of my favourite places when I was a lot younger as well. Font Hill Road, I never had cause to necessarily buy any of the dresses because being 10, 11, 12, you don't necessarily think about evening gowns at that point. But Brick Lane uh, was where I got my first leather jacket. It was this most amazing fringed jacket. Sounds <laughs> wonderful. Sounds, it does. It sounds eighties, and it was. Got any photographs we can put up? Um, <laughs> maybe <laughs> worryingly, um, there wasn't that sort of evidence at the time, <laughs> and it had studs over it. I was clearly going through some kind of Dolly Parton phase, and loved it. Now I don't wear it anymore. In fact, I gave it away to a very, very good friend of mine, and she's getting a lot of wear out of it. She's actually was an ex-student who now does a lot of work for Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. So that's brilliant. So it's gone to a good cause. Yes. Very good cause. (laughs) Well, Font Hill Road is uh, an interesting place, and I uh, challenge anyone to come up here, bring your your credit card with you, and do, do uh, do a bit of retail therapy. Uh, I think they're only open to retailers and, and on the weekend. I think the rest of the time is wholesale. But I think it's mainly, yes, yeah, wholesale. Um, wholesale. But you can get some pretty cool things, actually. There's some amazing shoes here. <laughs> <laughs> really colourful. Um, but again, now I do a financial audit on myself. I'm very mindful of how I spend my money. <laughs> well, you've just used the the keyword of, yes. to, of today's conversation, which we're going to come on to very shortly because Audrey, uh, her latest book, because you've written two books now, I believe. Yes, yes, this is the second book. The, the, the latest book is called The Leader's Guide to Mindfulness, How to Use Soft Skills to Get Hard Results, which is a which is a great subtitle. I, I like that, that sort of position of soft and hard, yeah. which, which is great. Now, we'll come on to that because you are an expert in mindfulness. I hope so. At least I would say I was an expert in applied mindfulness, which is what I talk about in the book. Mm. My grandfather was probably the bigger expert in conve- more conventional spiritual mindfulness uh-huh. because he used to lecture in Buddhism um, oh, wow. in Malacca. And I came across one of his books, which was the way that came about was much more recently. Um, I lost my mum about a year and a half ago and was going through her things and came across a book that my grandfather had written on Buddhism. And so much of what he put in his book, I was writing in my own. And so the end of 
the leader's guide actually has 10 lessons that I learned from him through his book. There is also part of me that regrets not speaking to him more about it when he was alive. Um, but he, as I say, was a practicing Buddhist. He helped build the Sikh Kya In temple in Malacca as well, where he also taught. But my whole family loved England. They loved London in particular. Mm-hmm. And they migrated over here and spent the remainder, I mean, probably a good 50 plus years here. So now. was it your grandparents were the first generation to come over to London? It was actually my parents mm-hmm. who were trained as teachers in Kirby College in Liverpool. Then they had to go back and serve their government time in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And then they loved the UK and the weather, strangely enough, and came over and settled in London. And hang on, let me get that right. They loved the weather. I know. It's, in Liverpool. <laughs> it, yeah, just cooler. I think they got yeah. used to it. And then my mum's parents came over sadly my dad's parents passed away in Ipoh so they they came to visit in London but they didn't move and they they actually had their lives in uh, Ipoh which they they enjoyed very mm. much so you've got a background in uh, well Buddhism yes you've got a background like, hence in mindfulness although probably wasn't known as mindfulness in those days necessarily uh, it's known as mindful meditation mm. in the sense that that was the name of what you call that particular style of meditation as part of the um, eightfold path in buddhism but even my grandfather's teaching talks about applied buddhism and so in many ways what i talk about is applied mindfulness which isn't quite the same thing but it is certainly respectful of its heritage mm. we'll come on to mindfulness and the book and the teachings of the book uh, in, in a little while but i'm interested to know how you got into the sort of feel because obviously you've got a, a grandfather who was learned in buddhism yes and his practices you've got parents who were teachers yes. as well so was it always your intention to follow suit or did you have other sort of aspirations when you were younger? Uh, I always had an aspiration that I would be the most amazing famous actress in the whole world. That uh, was my original dream. And at the time being in London was really suitable to that because all the opportunities are in London. And I was I went to drama school, went to speech and drama school as well. Um, when I was very young, but my mum was drawn to Hastings because it reminded her of Malacca. And at the age of 11, I moved to Hastings, but never really left London fully. And my dad also stayed in London teaching whilst my mum and my grandparents moved to Hastings. And as soon as I turned 16, I didn't take my my A-levels. I auditioned for the Sylvia Young Theatre School, got in, came back to London immediately. But that's when I had this reckoning where the acting life was not actually for me. And I went to Greyhook Hospital School, which is part of the South Westminster Consortium, to complete my A-levels and then stayed in London to go through university mm-hmm. and so on. And I, I've never regretted coming back. So what was it that put you off the acting world? I think I wasn't a strong enough person to cope with rejection, which you need to be able to cope with. Maybe you can say, yes, I was 16 at the time. But I think that was part of it. I found it difficult to fit in with a lot of people. They were perfectly nice, but I couldn't quite connect. So I struggled mm. with that. And then when I went to do my A-levels, then I was able to explore the theatre still in the sense of I did the sixth form shows, <laughs> 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 which 
which is great fun. Um, made some amazing friends. They are still my best friends um, now, even though a lot of us have moved around um, to the outskirts of London and uh-huh. so on. But I liked being able to explore, I think, the academic side of things. Um, that's when psychology really grabbed me as an interesting subject. I did still take theatre studies, but human nature began to fascinate me. And then I found I was able to use a lot of what I was learning with psychology. It helped my acting and vice versa. So whilst I was still involved in community theatre, I was able to understand nuance a lot better as an actor, but also as somebody who could read other people and deal with other people's behaviours. Because of the acting, I would be able to listen to how someone was saying something and be able to say to them, well, you're saying that, but you're actually coming across as angry. What, what's going on there? And mm. so the two disciplines really informed each other. Mm. And I think they've stayed so, side by side as I went through university where I studied psychology and then got involved with ballroom dancing at university, strangely enough. Oh, crikey. No, I didn't read that. Any, pick yeah. up, anyway, you've kept that quiet. Yeah, I, I used to dance for, um, we, we were ULU, the University of London Union. Uh-huh. We used to have a reputation of being the last ones in the bar, and the first ones in the bar. First actually. ones in, last ones out. <laughs> yes, because yeah. we, when I joined, we we were all pretty bad. <laughs> we we were. I think it was a pleasure when we came twenty sixth out of thirty two one year. But in the four years I was at the uni, three years of psychology, one year of a masters. We actually won the nationals at the end, and that was amazing. And then we just didn't go to the bar so much anymore. So you ended up taking it quite seriously. Yes, I. I did. Uh, But then I think that was also because, again, there were the most amazing people there. Mm. Really interesting just to chat to even outside the dancing. And the dancing was just good fun. It was um, a way of expressing ourselves. But largely, it was just a really good bunch of people who could talk about anything. And that was amazing. And that, to me, is actually what London always has been and what I get every time I come into work or or play. (laughs) You mentioned that you you didn't get into acting, but I think you did have a fairly significant part in a Bond film, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> if you look very carefully at the Nine Eyes scene, Inspector, where C is talking about the <laughs> need for more surveillance, I am at the front representing China. I think I'm, I'm the deputy head of China in that. <laughs> um, but that one came about later when I was on the path to self-employment. Right in the sense that I needed a second stream of income. It so happened they were looking for Chinese people to sign up for the extras agency. I signed up and that came along and I got lucky. Wow. So that was that was good That must have been quite interesting, actually. Really amazing. Um, again, met some amazing people whilst doing the extra work. But what was so incredible about Spectre was that we were actually directed by Sam Mendes. And that never happens to extras in that your background, which means that you get directed by the second or third assistant director. Mm -hmm. But because this scene was a significant scene and you can, we were with a lot of the main cast and it was a moment in the show, which in the show, in the film, (laughs) which um, was very meaningful. Then Sam Mendes himself came in and that was incredible. That was the most amazing Did he have a certain aura that everybody else... Oh, yeah. He walked on stage and the room just fell silent. Uh No one needed to shush anybody. We were just sitting there waiting for him to speak. And he was so lovely as well. So that was just a brilliant experience. Fantastic. Well, you can always say you've been in a Bond movie. I mean, not many people can say that. I can. My husband likes saying it. (laughs) I was a Bond girl. I know, I know. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's how my husband sees it, and that's fine by that's me. That's fine. To Absolutely, do that. you, can, you can live off that forever. <laughs> and also, I believe you nearly made it into Miss Saigon as well. Yeah, that's when I had a foray again. So between my end of my first degree and my masters, I decided to just as a one-off audition for Miss Saigon. And I got down to the last four and didn't get in. And at that point, again, it was that, well, do I keep pushing this or I've got this opportunity to do my master's now. Do I go back and do that? Uh Then I can still dance as well for another year. So there were all these other things that were playing on me. And again, going back to academia was the right decision for me. Yes, it so felt, I took my master's right. at Imperial. Yeah. What, what role were you going for, Miss Saigon? It was just one of the girls. One right. of the yeah, okay. no, not not anyone, not Kim or yeah. um, any of the significant Vietnamese girls in there. But uh-huh. it was one one of the chorus. But yeah, she got me listening cool. to that in the car on the way up here. But it's, 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 it's such great. a beautiful, it's such a wonderful piece. It's isn't a it? brilliant musical, and again, I have to say, it's wonderful to see so many Southeast Asian and yeah. Asian performers on stage. A bit raunchy, mind you. It is a I little my, bit. I took an aged aunt and my wife to see it a couple of years ago. And we're sitting there. The open, I don't know if they've sort of sexed it up a bit. But they the opening scene have. was like, oh, my God. But I don't think my... <laughs> yes. The the um, revival yeah. of it has definitely been sexed up yeah. a lot. Yes. Um, but it was pretty raunchy for when it was at the yeah, time. Yeah, I just didn't... I just thought, oh, my God, I shouldn't be taking my 90-year-old aunt to see this. But she enjoyed it. <laughs> Brilliant. That's the main thing. That's she, what entertainment she is. She enjoyed it. <laughs> So you cast aside your ideas of becoming a superstar, either in Bond movies or on, on the theatre, you know, the West, West End stage, to pursue academia yeah. and psychology. Yeah. So how did that sort of, how did you progress with that? Well, I went into psychology for my first degree wow. and I loved that very, very much. I then did a number of other jobs after taking my master's. I, did, I first of all tried event management and advertising, which I got on with, but only to the sense of I, where I got a little bit bored quite quickly was I was running these great events. I was working for um, one of the car companies, <laughs> a very prestigious one. But all I was doing was going in and seeing the inside of dealerships. And that was it, even though I was organizing gourmet nights and wine tastings and things like that. All you would do is would travel the country and go into a dealership again. <laughs> and it was really tragic. At one point, you could actually test me and I could tell you the postcodes of all the dealerships. <laughs> um, and then I knew maybe that's not what I want to do for the sure. rest of my life. And so that's what brought me into a few other things I played around with. I tried law for a while and then teaching as in tutoring because I wasn't a qualified teacher. I was actually a qualified drama teacher in the sense of I could teach Lambda examinations. Um, So I did a little bit of that. And then I found I liked the law. I liked uh, and I I decided to go back and take a law degree, (laughs) which I did at Bloomsbury, which was great, really Mm -hmm. interesting. And I credit that for my ability to be able to write in the way I do. Be analytical as well in your thinking. Oh, 100%. As much as psychology was interesting to me, it was law that really pinned down the nitty gritty of, if you want to say it, say it like this, always have your alternatives, weigh up both sides, think critically. And I'm forever grateful to, it's now the University of Law, it was the College of Law when I went there, to everybody there for really instilling those skills in me. But very similar to acting, I didn't quite get on with all of the people I was meeting on my placements. I think I'm not one of those people that easily sits in a pub to bond Mm -hmm. because I don't drink. I drink quite badly in the sense of I'll have one alcoholic drink, go red and fall asleep for the rest of the night. So no point doing that. (laughs) 
Um, so I struggled with that a lot. And then after that, I found my way into teaching. I got a job in St. Albans whilst I was living in London. So I was commuting up there and they trained me as a, it was a graduate teacher training position. Um, loved it. And I was trained in psychology because although I wanted to teach drama and was hired as a drama teacher, because my degree was psychology, <laughs> I had to do that. So it's been this whole mix of different things. And it always felt like I was doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, but having to adapt. So I became a drama teacher and then head of psychology for four years that I was teaching there and then got the opportunity to do my PhD. Right. And that's not something you take lightly. And right. I just thought, wow, this is, this is really quite something. At that point already after four years, I was getting disillusioned with teaching in the sense that I felt I was banging my head against a brick wall. I wasn't able to give as much support to students as I wanted to give. I wasn't able to, there became a lot of target setting as opposed to real quality of the work that you're putting across. And so I thought, okay, well, if I take, if I get this PhD, it is funded, which means that I will still be teaching because that's how you pay for, pay back the funding. Yeah. Applied. And that was at Brunel University and got in. So that's how it took me through my PhD. That's when um, all of my, my law writing skills came in useful because I was starting to write academic papers and so on. But strangely enough, by the end of my PhD, I found that the academic style of writing, I wasn't suited to. I could do it because I had to. And I had a couple of brilliant supervisors actually who really pulled me through kicking and screaming. And I handed in my thesis and I just thought, I, I don't think this style of writing is for me. Mm. But I like writing and I like speaking at these conferences and I like doing all of those things. And so I started doing little bits of writing like theatre reviewing. So I reviewed little fringe pieces and... For, for who? Just for your pleasure was, or just no, on behalf was, of local papers? It was um, an online site called Remote Goat. I don't know whether they're still going anymore, but it was for them. Mm. And with that, I got the chance to be a food reviewer as well for the Food and Drinks Guide. And I don't, don't know whether you've seen The Vicar of Dibley, but what, yes. when I, I went off that one once when I packed in three reviews in one day and literally went from three, one three-course meal to another, to another. <laughs> and oh my goodness, it was the three Christmas dinners. It was the most frightening day <laughs> I uh, care fantastic. to remember. But it got me into some kind of publications at that point. And since then... After I finished my PhD, I had to carry on teaching because it paid the bills. But then I eventually moved into training and I trained for the NHS. I was in learning and development. And at that point is when I started thinking, well, I'm being now asked to deliver some training sessions on my own and being paid to do those. Do you think I can do this as a proper job? Which is when I bit the bullet and that was that's already taken us to 2014. So this is a long mm. kind of mm. long drawn out process. And in 2014, I left, I went in full time freelance. That's also around the time I signed up for the extra agency because I thought, well, at least I can fall back on acting if nothing else. Well, that's really became a bond <laughs> girl. Do that. Did the bond thing because it was a second stream of income. Uh -huh. But working really, really hard, I then started making a name for myself as a trainer got my coaching qualification and then subsequently trained in psychometrics. And whilst I was teaching and teaching as in training my own sort of stuff uh, is when I 
got to know the Chrissy B show and that and started off my pathway into where we are right now. What I love about that story is I mean it's it's um it's probably not untypical of a lot of people's lives and journeys in, in trying to find where they fit in yeah. in life, trying lots of different things, succeeding yeah. in some, being knocked back significantly yes. in others, yeah. not getting on with certain people. I mean, while you were doing all of that, were you aware of the journey you were on? In other words, to coin your phrase, you know, were you mindful of where you, what you were doing? What was was life just happening to you at yeah, that time? Not at the time. No. Now I look back on it because now I do quite a lot of interviews and now I think about it um, a lot more. I now definitely feel that where I always felt I was at, at the wrong place at the wrong time, all of those moments, all of those transferable skills, all of that adaptation has finally fallen into place. Mm. And now I feel like I'm supposed to be where I am. So do you right think now. all those experiences were the right experiences? I mean, with hindsight, looking back, they were the right experiences at the right time then. Absolutely. Although it, although it didn't feel like it. Yes. And they've all coalesced to get you yeah. where you are now. With hindsight, absolutely. And I would also say with hindsight, there is no way I would have been mature enough to handle that sort of recognition and appreciation mm. at the time. I needed to go through the hissy fits. I needed to go through the, it's not fair. Um, because that probably made me stronger and more determined. Uh -huh. And... But now I can look back on that and I now know, well, I can, I have got the fight in me if I need to use the fight, but I can choose my battles. I have the ability to work hard when I want to, but then sometimes there are some things which I don't need to force. And now I have that understanding. Maybe it's a little later than some people because I'm on the good side of 50, but <laughs> I'm, I'm not, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> but um, maybe 40 is a little bit on the later side, you know, to, to it's have never too late to learn that's something it. new that's and, and to, to feel comfortable in your skin as well, I suppose, yeah. which is great, but that's a fantastic lesson in itself. And one, those building blocks are great for you to be able to impart your knowledge and skill and wisdom to other people in your in your teaching. Absolutely. I think that is the most important part. And in telling that sort of story, it's important to look at the failures because so often people think it's all about, I set myself a goal and then I achieve it and that's the end. You often learn and change path through failing. Sometimes there are certain things where, certain obstacles where you absolutely can't bulldoze your way through. You have to find a way around it. And those failures teach you those skills of adapting, of being flexible, of having transferable skills, of recognizing you have transferable skills. And these are things which I see in my coaching clients, I see in my students, um, I see whenever I'm training. And that's really important to be able to pull that out and speak to people and say, don't, don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah. You may well be at the right point for your life at the moment. But just not realize it or accept it yeah. yet until you look back. Exactly. It's this old thing, you know, one door closes, another door opens. Look at the opportunity that's presenting yeah. itself to you and look at it as a positive thing, yes. if you possibly can. Although at the time, you clearly don't see it that way. Anyway. Yeah. What, what do you think today? I mean, I think today we're probably living in some of the hardest times emotionally. Hugely. Um, I, I can't obviously speak for, you know, pre-industrial times or whatever, but... If we, if we go to pre-industrial times, I don't know, 1800s or whatever, for a century, you could learn a trade and that trade would be exactly the same there. for the next hundred yeah. years. Yeah. Today, you could learn something as and we it's speak now and I'm, we've got this recorder here and tomorrow it could be something completely Absolutely. different. I'll have to learn a completely new set of Absolutely. skills. And that is so 
frightening for the for this generation, this millennium generation and, th- and those to come. The sad part is when I was writing my PhD, which I did on emotional labor, which is the use of soft skills as part of your job. So a nurse needs to know how to take blood, but they also need to be nice to their patients. So the emotional labor is the extra Even work when under severe in. stress. Absolutely. And whilst I was doing that, I read a wonderful book by Richard Wathno called Learning to Care. And that was written in the 80s. And at that point, even he had said, this is a problem for the generation today. A lot of people are now moving into project work. There is no consistency. Mums and dads are having to move house. You can't necessarily make friends anymore because you were going to make new friends in two years' time. That's the length of time you might expect to be somewhere. How can we possibly expect the next generation to form consistent long-term relationships when that is not the lifestyle they're being brought into? And that is a big concern. Another big concern for me has been things like social media, which is a wonderful tool, but that really brings out things like jealousy, competition, comparison. That's terrible for mental health. And then the advent of reality TV, which I really struggle with as a psychologist because I honestly don't believe some of those programs would have been acceptable as a psychological experiment in the privacy of a lab rather than but they're now entertainment how yeah. how does that work I, I i personally i don't get it my my kids love them and some of our friends my age like like them yep. but my kids generation they absolutely love it to me it's like you know the film the truman show yes when he's living in this bubble and you only realize that he's you know that everything is a complete yeah. setup it, it's like that i just don't I just don't get it. I fully agree with you. And my concern is that there is something, exactly as you said, I think there is something fundamentally missing from society at the moment that perhaps we need to try and get back. Because what worries me about some of these programs is why do we have to watch them in order to feel that we fit in so we can talk to other people about them? That's already inauthentic. Why do we have to effectively bully other people? Because if you've seen some of the memes that come out when you watch reality TV, mm. we're talking about people here, mm. not, not animals, not objects, not characters in a drama. They're really mean things people are saying. And should we be doing that to fit in? Should escapism, which is what some people say, which is like, I agree, maybe we need escapism, but should escapism make us feel bad and feel inadequate when we watch something like that? I think there are bigger issues at stake. And I think... We need to find healthier escapes. Mindfulness is one way yeah, of doing it. Which is interesting. Because, not the only way. Yeah, because why we've got all these concerns for comparisons with one another and having a six-pack and having Botox lips yeah. and, and all this stuff. These are all superficial values rather yes. than um, principles and character. Yeah. IMHO, as they say today. <laughs> <laughs> is it why, therefore, that today society is looking back on ancient wisdom such as Buddhism, such as mindfulness, such as I practice transcendental meditation, which I started a couple of years ago and love. It's a different form of yes. med- meditative yeah. practice, which you're probably very familiar with. Is it why we're, we're, there are now movements trying to get people back to old, you know, things our mothers used to do, our parents used to tell us to do? I think it's why some of us do it, mm-hmm. but I'm afraid I'm a bit cynical in that I know the word mindfulness when I was re- researching the book. It came into the mainstream literature reviews in the 80s, which Mm -hmm. coincides with the time that the mindfulness-based stress reduction cause came into business. And I am very concerned with that. So whilst on the one hand... Why does that concern you? Because it is likely to become a well-being tick box. 
Oh, so it's a fad, do you think? Perhaps a, a fad that people say, oh, I, I, I do mindfulness. I think for some it can be. And I think for some it goes more than that. It becomes a tick box exercise. We're a company. We offer mindfulness. Therefore, we're looking after people's well-being. In America, there, is, there are companies where they are actually offering a mindfulness session or a yoga session in place of paid holiday. Wow. That is wholly inappropriate. Mm. That's not how you do business. That's why I get very concerned about how it's being used. Yeah. Let's just take a step back for a minute because now, now we want to sort of dive into your book. So just repeat the book. is The Leader's Guide, The Leader's Guide to Mindfulness, How to Use Soft Skills to Get Hard Results. So this is a book about how to incorporate the practice of mindfulness within business, yeah, within absolutely. corporate life, within our, work, within our working life. Personally, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I think obviously as a leader, you, you need to incorporate it into your own life first before you can sort of inculcate it, it, it in others. Yes. But let's just understand what mindfulness is, because I think you, you say in the book that there is no one definition, there's no one method for, for measuring what mindfulness is, but there's a few explanations of, of what it is. And there's one particular I liked, which I think is the best one, which you say, or not you say, it's Daniel Siegel. I don't know who Daniel Siegel is. They're is all big names yeah, in, it, yeah. the, in the field. Yeah. So he explains that mindfulness in its most general sense is about waking up from a life on automatic yeah. and being sensitive to novelty in our everyday experiences. With mindful awareness, the flow of energy and information that is our mind enters our conscious attention and we can both appreciate its contents and come to regulate it in a, its flow in a new way. Yes. The first part of that really resonates with me yep. because we, we are so much going through life on autopilot and not stopping to, to smell the coffee. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we're wondering where our life has gone. That's, yeah. that's part of the problem. But for me, it's also the second part of that quote that's really important because once you are in tune with your body and you do know what you're doing, then you've got to do something about it. Yes. There's no point sitting there saying, well, that makes me stressed and then just sticking with the same routine, you've got to be able to then apply that knowledge to take action. So it is important to bring it to the fore, but then you also know what to do with it. So within a business organization, what, what are the first tips or what are the first strategies you would say to get mindfulness? Or what are the benefits of mindfulness first? Let's, let's, let's take it on well, that. Stance. The research has certainly shown that there are a lot of benefits in the sense that when companies have introduced mindful practice, whether that be through the more conventional breathing exercises, yoga, meditation, all of those um, sorts of behaviors and techniques, they have noticed that people are more able to sleep better, they take fewer sick days, they may even be more productive. However, those are not the only ways of being mindful. And that's where my book comes in. And what I like to look at is, it's not just, I mean, yoga and meditation are great ways of becoming more aware, but simply just telling somebody be more aware can actually make a difference. Mm. So if the way I would see its value in business is not only for your own well-being, which is where the research has shown, but it's also for very specific areas. If you are more aware of everything that's coming in through your senses, for example, your creativity might be heightened because you're not just trying to think with your eyes. You are also maybe thinking, okay, how might I put that pitch across if I'm thinking about the taste or the feel or the sense of it? Or even how would my client see it? Or if you're trying to be even more creative, how might a dog see this? How might a child see this? How sure. might an astronaut see this? So you can actually become aware of more um, inspirations around you. 
Also, when it comes to being aware of what you're thinking and feeling, you become more aware of your biases, which means your decision making gets a little bit more astute because instead of kind of jumping because it feels nice to jump, you might realize that that nice feeling may also have been the feeling that led you to jump into awkward paths in previous um, occasions. Mm -hmm. But by understanding that, and for example, I know this, uh, this may sound very strange, but I, in being aware of how my body responds, I know when there is a decision that I'm 100% sure of, I feel it in my head. That's a definite, yeah, I know this. But if I'm feeling it in my gut or my chest, that's when I don't take the decision just yet, because that's the time where I will walk around a shop with clothing and then hang it back on a shelf. And I've recognized that in myself. For you, it might be different. For different people, it will be different. But being aware of that can make us more certain about, right, I've made that decision and I'm, I'm good with that. And then we can move forward with our lives. So mindfulness has a lot of benefits, although some of them may be less obvious to see as a return on investment. It will just be higher performance. It might be people want to stay with your company because they're valued more. It might be you have better relationships with other people because you think about, oh, well, they responded like that and yes, it upset me, but was that me or was that them? And if it was a bit of both, how do I deal with it rather than just lashing out? So those are the other benefits. Well, if you're feeling better, um, more healthy, more invigorated when you go to work, then as you say, you're more likely to stay Less sick days because sick. I don't know how many sick days are accounted for for stress and anxiety in today's it's society. It's going up. It's going up <laughs> by the year, I think. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. this is probably going to overtake uh, time off for, for back problems. Y- yes, yes, or rather that because stress is becoming acceptable, and in a way, this is a good thing. People are actually saying, you know what, I'm stressed, so they don't have to make up a physical ailment, and that's actually one very positive. Um, about mindfulness and talking a lot more about mental health it's that just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't real mm. and that's largely mindfulness as well yeah do you think sometimes stress and anxiety i mean there's nothing wrong with stress no and a lot of people think oh, i'm stressed or i'm anxious therefore you know have i got mental health problems not necessarily no. if it's impacting on your life then perhaps but stress and anxiety are quite normal and it's telling you something isn't it absolutely and also some people work well under pressure because mm. of the adrenaline so If that suits you, great. But what I would always be aware of is don't necessarily seek out leaving things to a deadline. If you really are an adrenaline junkie, go on a roller coaster or something, find a maybe a slightly healthier way that isn't going to compromise your career. Yeah. But sometimes adrenaline can do wonders for us. But feeling anxious, we often, it just tells us that we need to deal with it. Mm. It's our body's natural response to it. And that's why it's useful to understand what our body is telling us. Can you give some one or two examples, practical examples of how a business could incorporate mindful practices within their organization? This one is for businesses that are daring to do it because this one's a little bit, I would dare to say, fluffy. But it's learning to listen to each other in a safe space. It's a drama exercise and it's a creative ball exercise. And what you would do if you have a team that's willing to do this is you're holding an invisible ball and you're going to throw the invisible ball at somebody and you're going to change it's what it is so you I might throw it at you and say Steve this is a cat Mm -hmm. and before you change it to your idea you have to say acknowledge it's a cat whether it's through your gestures or whether you say it before you change it to someone uh, to something else and what that actually teaches people when you break it down is that a people actually have a lot of fun creating things and that it loses it breaks down a lot of barriers but 
you listen and acknowledge somebody else's idea before you steamroll mm, it mm. and make it your own. And just that act of explaining it makes people realize, oh my goodness, I didn't think I was being dismissive when I jumped on an idea and went, oh yeah, but we could do this. Mm. But that person might actually be feeling, oh, did you not hear yeah. me? And that's that's quite important. So that would be one way. Another way would be to do something like a future planning audit. So rather than looking at training needs analysis and say, well, right, what can we train you in right now? Is speak to people and make them think about, well, where do you want your career path to go? And is that going to be in line with the organizational goals as well? And then training people for that particular thing and training your own staff for that particular change in the organization, because that way you're staying ahead of the curve as opposed to responding, mm. which may be quite late on. So you've got the, the, the more fun type of things that you can do, but you've also got the very serious things. A well-being audit, yeah. asking people, do you feel safe in this environment? Might reveal a lot of things that you maybe didn't want to hear, but at least if you hear them, you can actually deal with them. Yeah. Allowing people to take a toilet break. I know that sounds silly. Asking people to have um, lunch away from their desks just so they get up and walk. That's really good for you as well. Simple things like stretching at your desk can really help posture. See, these are really simple, and, practical yeah. things that people wouldn't probably ever associate with a mindful practice. Absolutely. 30 seconds, that's yeah. all it takes. But what do you think you're doing when you're deep breathing? You're stretching, you're focused on your body. Mm. It's just reminding you to do it. And I think it's important that we remind ourselves to do it rather than set a little alarm on our phone or have some phones or smartwatches doing it for us. Oh, stand up now. Since when is it appropriate to give over so much control to a machine? Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. why I would say these are just good for us as well. It yeah. also helps us to think critically about things. No, they're all perfectly good, relevant tools to use in, well, in, in daily life and in organizations. But my concern is I've worked, I, I have my own little business, so I'm self-employed, I suppose, and have been for about 15 years and would be completely unemployable now. <laughs> and I, because I've worked in some fairly large businesses before and I can't see that they would ever take these sort of things on board because they may think they're they're a bit sort of woo-woo a bit I sort know. of you know spiritual maybe a bit odd but the, they're not no the lovely thing is there are some organizations that bring me in specifically because mm -hmm. they do want to embrace well-being and they genuinely care about that and that in itself I've always said that people take on the characteristics of the leader mm -hmm. if the leader's up for it then chances are everybody they employ is really open to to anything. But the way I would always say, say to people, and this is what I do at the start of any training session, is I'm not trying to change you. You're successful people and you have come into where you are right now by doing exactly what it is you're doing. If this broadens your mind a little bit, if this gives you other options, if this means you can take more control or it means you can influence things so you get the win at the end of it, great. Mm. But learning... Anything um, where it might involve behavior change is like a pick and mix. Use what works for you. I'm not dictating you must do X, Y, or Z, but I'm suggesting these are things which could be useful. And maybe if they're not useful right now, pin them somewhere and draw them back later on. And I'd say that to anyone who's maybe a bit skeptical and also isn't sure about it, at least give the book a go and then see whether just incorporating one or two things in your own practice will actually benefit your team and then if that works 
then you can start rolling that out a little bit further. Yeah. The, the book is full of practical uh, application. In fact, there's a whole, a whole part one is practical applications. Yes. And the second part talks about personal applications. And one of the sections, well, I, I, like, I like all of it, Bessie, <laughs> but I, I love all this sort of stuff because to me, psychology is improvement and education yes. and self-learning and self-improvement are critical. But the, se the section on self-care, yes. I think, is absolutely crucial. Now, it's interesting that I've just read this book over the last last few days because my wife, uh, who we said helps parents of kids with special needs, put on a retreat last weekend and she took a lovely country hotel and she took 10 mums away who've got kids with special needs. Yeah. And the whole theme of the weekend was look after yourself, self-care. Yeah. And by the, by the end of the second day, by all accounts, they were just in floods of tears, these yes. mums, because they'd realised that they'd been living other people's lives and they hadn't been looking after themselves. They've got their kids and their families yeah. and their jobs and they're, they're yep. a mum and they're, they're all these jobs, they're yep. all these things, but they've never been truly themselves. And it was just fascinating to, to, to see this unwind in them. And it's actually a really common reaction. When you do take a moment to really do something for you, it becomes very emotional. And it's, it sounds strange to say it's been a pleasure, but I've seen this and it's been a privilege to have been part of that in somebody's life. I sometimes take an even harsher tone with um, self-care in the sense that looking after and being responsible for other people does not excuse you from being responsible for yourself. Because if you don't learn to do that, who is going to be able to do it as well as you if your body physically says, I can't do this anymore? And also, if we take a moment to look after ourselves, we end up giving other people a better service anyway. So it's really important to, to think about you and your own value. One thing I say to, and it does tend to be working mums, their favorite phrase or one of the favorite phrases I've heard a lot from working mums is, oh, well, you just do it, don't you? I always say to them, no, no, you just do it, don't you? To some other people, that would be almost impossible what you actually do. So give yourself a little bit of credit here value what it is you're doing, value your abilities. And those are skills to be able to do everything that you do to manage personal life, professional life, as well as juggle housekeeping with children, with a pet, with husband, with whatever might be going on in your life. You don't just do it. You're just very, very good at all of those skills. Right. And once people can recognize that what they do has value, then they also begin to value themselves. Yeah and hopefully try and assert it a little bit yeah. more. It means they learn to say no a bit more as well. Yes. And again, it's also coming off this, this treadmill of living life yeah. as an automaton, you know, just letting life yes. happen to you, stopping, appreciating what you've done. Yeah, that exactly. You've achieved something, even yeah. however small, and then celebrating that little success. Absolutely. And whilst doing that, remembering who you are. So often we define ourselves by our job title or by our role, you know, like mum or boss or whatever it might be and we forget us so sometimes it's important for that moment to revisit who you are go somewhere that you like to go do something you used to like to do decide whether you still like doing it yeah. and that's really important too so you've got personal applications you've got practical applications and you've got mindful growth all about inspiration and maintaining this thing we call work-life balance <laughs> which uh, one person said um i went to a business conference in america a few years ago it was all about marketing and yeah. someone said oh how do you you know you're doing all these hours and how do you get work-life work balance he said well you must enjoy your job 
And if you enjoy your job, what's well, you don't need a work-life balance. That That is your life. That's part of it. But sometimes we all, even when I, en- I enjoy probably 99.9% of everything I do, but there will be a 0.1% of stuff that I don't enjoy doing. But it's also about recognizing and being grateful as well to all the good things and good people that you have in your life. That's as much getting the balance in your life as enjoying your work and enjoying your personal life and choosing wisely who you hang around with. Uh, it's it's about thinking, well, not I don't mean thinking it could be worse. I actually just mean thinking, well, I'm glad to have that person in my life or I'm looking forward to doing that today or I'm happy that this happened to me. And once we start appreciating that, then life can slow down a little bit mm. and we begin to feel a bit more in control. Yeah. And that's really, to me, what work-life balance is. It's being in control of your choices mm. and what it is you're doing. So are you optimistic for the future in terms of mental health, well-being, using the practices that, you know, whether it's transcendental meditation, whether it's mindfulness, whether it's yoga or yeah. whatever, or do you, do you fear for the future generations? Bit of both. Yeah. I think some people who never forget to think critically to remember that whilst we hear all of this information, including information from people like me um, coming in at them, they've got to work out what suits them. That's the most important thing. We have to learn to think critically. We can't just accept everything that's placed upon us. But similarly, we can't go around espousing everything that we do as if it's the the right way or the only way of doing it. Mm. If we can learn to live with that balance, then I think you can at least make your own little corner of the world a little bit more positive. I think there are some wonderful people doing wonderful work. Chrissy B Show is just a good example of that. A lot of companies I work with are doing, are really wanting to do their best for their teams, for the work that they actually put out there. I do a lot of work with WATG, which is a luxury architecture firm who are really embracing well-being, not only in their own um, business and their own organization, but actually in embedding it into the master planning that they do and in the designs that they're um, delivering. And that's the most amazing thing. The way I like to see my own role and the way I like people who support others to see their roles is it's a bit like Tinkerbell. It's a bit like um, I can give you the tools, but it's got to be up to you to use them because I cannot live your life for you. And why should you want me to? Mm. And if I can at least embed that empowerment and then offer you the choice of these options, that's a real privilege to be part of. So that's that's very important. So Tinkerbell, you're going around sprinkling your fairy dust. I try to do that. Yes, hoping that someone picks up some of the little pearls of wisdom. That's it. And then I always tell people, and if you don't want to do that, simply don't believe in me, and I'll go away. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody believes in fairies, surely. Well, you know, I'd hope so. So I am optimistic for the people who are really embracing it, and I am optimistic for their corners of the world. And I think that's sometimes all we can do. Change has to start somewhere. And maybe that will start a ripple effect outwards. I don't think we can necessarily say something is going to take off as quickly as we would like it to for mental health. There's still such a stigma about it. There are still a lot of people who are having to come to terms with not discussing something to actually accepting that this is an issue and they have to manage it. And we're also fighting against the stiff upper lip, the I must learn to cope, that approach to life. The more we talk about things, the more people that are out there that are 
really embracing well-being not as a fad but actually as something which makes people feel more fulfilled that makes people feel positive then that's a good thing no sure i think mental health uh, and it's fascinating because so many of the conversations i have with people on the podcast somehow gets around to mental health whatever you know whether i'm talking to someone specifically about mental health and i have had a number of guests on with that specific theme or not we somehow get around to mental health and well-being as being critical and things have moved on significantly yes. over since the, I mean, my sister unfortunately became very ill in the, in the, in the 1980s. She suffers from schizophrenia right. and has been very ill since then. Mm. And things have changed in terms of the, the stigmatization, if there's such a word, of mental health. Because people are talking about it now more yes. than ever. And there is some more, much better funding than there used to be. Yep. But that is at the end when people are unwell if you like yes it's point of crisis it's when it's a crisis but in preventative and having tactics like mindfulness that's where the tools come in that's where you need the tools at the front end and it's getting people to accept that these aren't old wives tales woo-woo strategies these have real life absolutely benefits not only can they be preventative but actually this is drawing from the premise of positive psychology once you have got better or got back to normality or whatever that is, these are actually the very same tools that can help you to thrive and to grow. The whole thing about the positive psychology movement was that um, Seligman, when he became president of the APA, the American Psychological Association, said, well, psychology feels a bit half-baked. We just get people back to normal. We don't think about what makes them feel great afterwards. And for me, and certainly for the Chrissy B Show, for WATG, for the people I work with or who bring me in to work with them, they care about pushing you beyond happy. They want to make you thrive. They want you to grow. They don't want it to stop when you've got back to normal. That's the starting point. And then you can use that as now the race is your own. It's yeah. totally up to you how you want to go ahead with, with your life. Well, we're coming to a, an end of our, our chat. It's been absolutely brilliant. I've, I've loved listening to you and your, your wonderful ideas. I know you've got to rush around the corner to the Chrissy B Show because, as we said before, you are the resident psychologist on the show. And uh, it, does it, it's going out live or is this going out in a This in will a go out next, next week or the week after. It's usually recorded um, a week or two weeks in advance. And what are you going to be talking about tonight? Tonight, I have the real pleasure of being on the show with somebody I met during a training session who is telling her life story. Oh, fantastic. Um, she lost her husband very tragically and it's all about how she was able to piece her life together, uh-huh. the good people that are around her, the strategies and tools she used. So it's yeah. all about being positive after heartbreak and that's going to be so lovely to talk yeah. about tonight. That, that, that's something different again because that's obviously dealing with a tragedy which yeah. she had no control over. Yes. Well, before we wrap up, I always ask my guests at this this time of the, the, the our conversation to give us a couple of places in London that they know or love. It could be a secret place or just a place that's personal to them. You tell too many people, you'll ruin it, but you're just a few oh, people. No, yeah. So can, have you got a couple of places you can you can tell us about? I do. One in particular is Brimfield Park, and it's where it's opposite where I grew up. And I love that park. We used to have sports day in that park. We used to have the fun fair in the park. I remember before the new climbing frame and... Um, whole new play park area for the children was put in what it used to be like it used to be that hot slide that you used to burn Burn your little bum on the way down (laughs) yes and there was a little slide and a big slide and it was the big thing to go on the big slide because it meant you were old enough to do it um I learned to ride my bike there and I was really sad because I went back there um probably about 
a couple of months ago and they're digging up other bits of it. I mean, half of it became a crazy golf course and oh, no. things like that were already changing. And then to lose another part of it, there used to be a little secret garden in there where I used to, I used to pretend I was the girl from the secret garden. <laughs> and um, that's one of my favorite places. That's Broomfield Park. Broomfield Park. And there's a, there's a little pagoda there where I used to feed the ducks and I walked up on that again and that was, that was just great. That was one place. And another place, this one is a little bit more commercial. It's Sarastro's in Covent Garden. Lovely restaurant, uh-huh. great food anyway. But oh my goodness, if you go there, just take your, take your camera into the toilet for no other weird nefarious purpose than for taking photographs of what is on those walls. It is incredible. You walk in there and it feels like you're walking into a backstage area of a theatre. They do have live musicians as well. Is this the place that's evenings. done out like a, um, a theatre all it is. red velvet and you've got boxes? Yes. You can and they sit come around the singing opera. Oh, it's yeah, amazing. It's magnificent. Every time anyone comes to London that hasn't been here or ha- it doesn't come here very often, I have booked a table at Suresh. <laughs> I haven't been there for years, but I had a guest on the show, uh, Janine Saba. Yes. Who. Um, has a wonderful magazine, luxury magazine that is called the Covent Gardener. So she knows all the people, yeah. all, all the hotels and restaurants and traders in Covent Garden. So she will know it. So she'll be delighted that you're giving it a giving Absolutely it a love it. It, it. it is a beautiful place. Well, thank you ever so much for your uh, your suggestions, your recommendations. Thanks for having and me. And thank you for uh, taking part. It's been an absolute pleasure. Same and, here. And uh, keep up the very good work that you're doing. Thank you. You too. Thank you very much. Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box we're shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.